Hi, and welcome to the Law Notes episode of the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. Well, we made it. The election is over, and with 306 electoral votes and the most votes of any presidential candidate in U.S. history, Joe Biden is the president-elect. That means with his administration taking over in January, we expect to see a ton of executive and regulatory action undoing many of the most dangerous and discriminatory policies of the Trump administration that we've been talking about on this podcast. But this week we are going to catch you up on all the important LGBT litigation that's been happening during the month of October. We have several interesting developments, including a Ninth Circuit case about citizenship for a child born to a same-sex couple. We have another interesting case challenging New York's ability to prevent discrimination and adoption. And we're going to take a closer look at some of the ways that the Bostock ruling in the Title VII case that was a huge victory before the Supreme Court is now being used to expand equality across many different contexts. With us, as always, is New York Law School professor Art Leonard, chief editor and writer of Legal's LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal developments here and abroad. Hi, Art. What a relief. It's so good to see your face in this climate. <laughs> yes, yes. It, it is a relief. And uh, I would love to spend the whole time talking about the Fulton argument, but we'll do that next month. Uh, <laughs> and in fact, in this issue of Law Notes, we refer to the pending argument in Fulton and how important it is, even for one of the cases that we're discussing today. Yeah, and you're gonna you, you'll give us a little bit of a preview. I'm sure something about Fulton will slip out as yes. we talk about the related uh, case with some of the similar issues in New York, um, but also the election. I mean, all of the issues that we talk about on law notes from the discriminatory uh, trans military ban and that ongoing litigation. There's just a flood of things that are going to change with this administration. We'll talk about that, of course, but do you have some thoughts about- Well, one, one thing right off the bat, uh, I already have a new Karnosky decision to send you. <laughs> uh, that's, you know, Karnosky is, is one of the uh, now five, I guess, uh, cases challenging the transgender military ban. And uh, the focus of these monthly opinions that we've been getting are the ongoing uh, discovery disputes. So I have a new ruling to send to you to write up for the December issue of Law Notes It'll be in the email to you shortly. But that's all going to be history, we hope. We hope that because uh, it's already been mentioned in newspaper articles, one of the things on the to-do list for the first hundred days is to reverse the transgender military ban. So although uh, the underlying legal issues may be moot in a certain sense, uh, there may be individual claims uh, still, damage claims, people whose careers were, were affected or careers who were put on hold who wanted to enlist. So there may still be litigation about that. Uh, but what will happen to these pending suits, which have been pending, of course, since uh, the fall of 2017, uh, is another story. It, it seems the Trump administration was trying to play out the string with all these discovery disputes they would never get to an appellate ruling on the merits. 
Okay, well, that's certainly a little bit of a preview of what we have to come and to discuss on next month's podcast, but let's get right into what's on the docket for this week, uh, including this really interesting case out of the Ninth Circuit. Andrew and Elad are a married same-sex couple who had twins through surrogacy. Each of them is a genetic father of one of the twins, but both fathers are legally recognized as parents of the twins. Elad is an Israeli citizen, and Andrew is a dual citizen of the U.S. and Canada. The Ninth Circuit decision involves a case that challenges the State Department's policy of granting citizenship to the child who is biologically related to the American citizen, but not to the child of the non-citizen, even though he is married to a citizen. Art, help us understand this important case. Okay, well, uh, first, in terms of the backstory, uh, these guys met in Israel. Uh, Andrew was, was in Israel, I guess, as a student, and he met Elad, and they wanted to get married. And, of course, there's no same-sex marriage in Israel, but there is same-sex marriage in Israel because if you go outside of Israel and get same-sex married and come back, it'll be recognized. But at any rate, they ended up going to Canada, uh, and uh, while they were in Canada, they got married. And they also decided to have kids, and uh, they uh, evidently used uh, two different surrogates mm. uh, because uh, one, as you as you mentioned, uh, Ethan is the genetic son of Elad, and uh, uh, their other son, uh, uh, let's see, I've got his name here, Aiden, Ethan and Aiden. Aiden is the uh, biological son of Andrew. So after the uh, boys were born. They went into the U.S. consulate in, I believe it was Toronto, and they said, we would like to apply for passports for our sons because we eventually want to move back to the United States where Andrew's from the West Coast, and they plan to settle in uh, Southern California. And after going through the whole history of their marriage and the boys, the consulate said, well, we can issue a passport uh, to Aiden but we can't issue a passport to Ethan. And this is the statute. It's 8 USC section 1401, uh, various subsections explaining uh, how you deal with uh, birthright citizenship for children born overseas. Very complicated. And, and there, there's uh, litigation about this involving same-sex parents and their children uh, born overseas and also different sex children. Uh, parents and their children born overseas, mm -hmm. sometimes because the U.S. citizen hadn't lived in the U.S. long enough. They'd been living overseas too much. Uh, so this is this is a rather well-litigated area uh, mm -hmm. and litigated enough so that there were actually district court decisions and Ninth Circuit decisions on this issue, but not involving same-sex parents, but involving the issue of genetic relationships. And that uh, helped to form the precedent for this case. So uh, they filed suit in the U.S. District Court uh, in the Central District of California, which is Los Angeles. And the trial judge rejected the State Department's argument that the word parent in the statute only refers to a genetic parent. They said the statute itself doesn't define the word parent. And the word parent has a legal meaning. It may have a genetic and a biological meaning in terms of offspring and stuff, but it has a legal meaning. And lots of different people can be parents without being genetically uh, related to the child in question. So uh, the courts are taking the position in several of these cases now 
that uh, a child of a married same-sex couple who in the place where the child is born is considered to be the child of both of them and their both names are on the birth certificate uh, the district court said well that should be conclusive uh, and you shouldn't have to show a genetic tie now these cases I said there, there are several of these uh, this one is being litigated by immigration equality two of the others are being litigated by lambda legal uh, and the, uh, the State Department has been holding tough on this. Uh, they've been appealing them, although this is the first one to actually get an appellate ruling. Uh, and the district judge said, based on other Ninth Circuit, earlier Ninth Circuit precedents, uh, I am bound to recognize this uh, child as being a natural born US citizen and to order the State Department to issue the child a passport. Uh, they are living actually in Southern California now. Uh, and uh, the uh, child who didn't have the passport got in through a visa <laughs> to, uh, to be able to live with uh, his parents. I mean, you can get a visa for that purpose. But uh, they would like the child, obviously, to be considered a natural-born U.S. citizen so he can run for president someday. But in the meantime, uh, the case was appealed. And actually, the, uh, the counsel for the government conceded in the Ninth Circuit that the panel that was hearing the appeal was bound by circuit precedent. They said, we are only appealing this to preserve the question, presumably so that they could eventually seek the Supreme Court to address it. Uh, but there is some question whether the Supreme Court's going to address it because Lambda announced in a press release uh, not too long after this opinion came out that uh, the State Department had abandoned its attempt to appeal one of the other cases. And in the, the other case that had been appealed, they've withdrawn the appeal. Uh, so, uh, and there was no immediate announcement whether they were going to file a cert petition here. Uh, and it could be that at the career bureaucracy level in the State Department, they're thinking if there's a change of administration, maybe the Biden administration will change course on this. Well, you make a very important point, Art, and that's we'll be talking about all of the actions that the incoming Biden administration is going to take uh, to change and reverse some of the executive and regulatory actions of the Trump administration. But this is appellate court precedent on this issue, which is good when it's such an important one, because we don't want this to keep changing back and forth depending on which administration is in power. And for those keeping score, we should say the name of the case is Devash Banks versus Pompeo. I believe the defendant had a different name earlier in the litigation. Uh, how many secretary of states did uh, Trump go through? And then... Uh, and of course, right after the election, a new defense secretary. I think the suit was filed during the Obama administration. So, you know, we had uh, the, uh, the prior secretary of state whose name we will not utter. Hashtag still her. All right, well, let's take a short break. And when we come back, we are going to talk about another discriminatory adoption agency. And we're back. The day after the election, the Supreme Court heard Fulton v. Philadelphia, a case with massive implications for the rights of LGBT people and the ability to enforce civil rights laws banning discrimination. 
We've talked about this case before, and next month we'll talk about it again, along with what happened at the court. But in the meantime, we're going to talk about another discriminatory adoption agency in another state and a ruling from a federal court temporarily blocking a New York action that would have required a religious adoption agency to provide services to married same-sex couples in the state. At issue are many of the same issues in the SCOTUS challenge. Let's talk about this case, Art. We've discussed this one before, I think, uh, because this has been kicking around for a while. This is New Hope Family Services up in the Syracuse area. They identify themselves as a Christian adoption agency, uh, and they were actually founded uh, in 1965 as Evangelical Family Service and eventually changed their name. Uh, At the time this agency was set up, by a Christian minister, uh, adoption law in New York was rather restrictive about who could adopt. Uh, Only single people or heterosexually married people could adopt uh, in those days. And this was very much in accord with the religious views of uh, the people who started Evangelical Family Service. Uh, But over the years, of course, the legal framework in New York changed. In 2010, the legislature belatedly catching up to the Court of Appeals, which was allowing uh, second parent same-sex partner adoptions in the 1990s, uh, they amended the law to authorize agencies to place children for adoption with, quote, an adult unmarried person, an adult married couple together, or any two unmarried adult intimate partners together. So as of 2010, same-sex couples could adopt jointly even if they weren't married to each other. And then, of course, we got the marriage equality law, which went into effect in 2011. We got the Obergefell decision in 2015. At some point, the people at the New York Office of Children and Family Services, which oversees adoption and foster care agencies in the state, decided it's time to do an audit and find out if any of our licensed agencies are violating the law. And uh, what the... uh, What the agency had done uh, was pursuant to the 2010 uh, legislative amendment, they had adopted regulations prohibiting discrimination in the adoption and foster care process. Uh, No discrimination allowed on the basis of sexual orientation or uh, even on the basis of marital status because the statute now authorized agencies to place children with unmarried couples. Uh, So after that law went into effect, we get this new regulation, uh, and they got in touch with New Hope as they got in touch with every agency. They asked agencies to uh, describe their policies, to submit their guidelines and their written policies and everything. And as a result of this audit, they said to New Hope, uh, you know, your policy is still that you will only place children with single adults or heterosexually married adults, different sex married couples, and no one else, and that violates our non-discrimination policy. Uh, So you better change your tune or you're not going to be licensed anymore. We will require you to shut down your services. And New Hope, of course, uh, went to the mat on this, uh, and they filed suit seeking uh, an injunction against New York State enforcing this anti-discrimination policy. And one of their arguments is that the statute, the statute itself, merely authorizes agencies 
to make placements with particular kinds of couples, but doesn't require them to. They said it's a permissive statute. And in fact, at the time when he signed it into law, Governor, then Governor David Patterson said that this statute will expand the opportunities for people to adopt children, but will not require any agency to change its policies, he said. And presumably that's because he maybe he was being lobbied to veto the bill by like Catholic charities or other organizations uh, that would feel threatened by it. Uh, so he was assuring them that uh, this wouldn't require that. Now, when the agency adopted its regulation, all of a sudden there's a non-discrimination policy that would require it. But the question is, did the agency go beyond its authority by adopting the non-discrimination policy? That's one of the issues here in the case. Uh, Judge May D'Agostino of the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of New York dismissed the lawsuit and in the course of dismissing, of course, denied as moot the petition for temporary injunctive relief. The case went up to the Second Circuit and this past summer in July, the Second Circuit panel reversed, said there are uh, serious legal questions here as to whether this regulation goes beyond the requirements of the statute, whether the agency could in fact adopt a non-discrimination ban where the legislature had not. And furthermore, based on the correspondence back and forth between New Hope and the officials from the Office of Children and Family Services, they said there may be hostility to religion expressed here. And you know, you look at Masterpiece Cake Shop and the Supreme Court said, you may not be hostile to religion. So they reversed, sent the case back to Judge D'Agostino and said, not only do they re reverse the dismissal, they say, of course, Judge D'Agostino now has to rule on the motion for temporary relief until the case is decided on the merits with a very strong indication to her, she'd better grant that uh, temporary relief. She'd better grant that preliminary injunction because they said this panel is retaining jurisdiction over the case and if there is a ruling by the judge to be appealed it's going to come back to the three of us. So, you know, fait accompli. So, uh, uh, she issued the uh, injunction early in October. And when will this case finally be decided? My prediction is it won't be decided until the Supreme Court issues a ruling in Fulton. Because at the heart of this case uh, is a First Amendment claim by the agency that even if the uh, non-discrimination policy is upheld, they say we have a First Amendment right here. Uh, and they're not premising it solely on religion. They're also premising it on freedom of speech as the Catholic Social Services Agency in Philadelphia was in that case. They're saying it's a hybrid case. It involves both free exercise and speech and therefore it's not covered by the Supreme Court's old precedent from 30 years ago, Employment Division versus Smith which is up for possible re overruling in the Fulton case. Gee, have we talked about that case before? <laughs> you know, we can't discuss this without discussing that because the Supreme Court's going to issue a decision in that case, which could come as early as January or as late as June. You can't really tell with the Supreme Court when they're going to drop an opinion. Depends how long it takes for the uh, justices to cohere around, you know, a majority in favor of one thing and then dissents coming up and drafts being going back and forth. So it's not unusual for a case that's argued in October or November to not be decided until late in the spring or even right at the end of the court's term. Uh, so I wouldn't expect an opinion on this uh, because of the significance of Employment Division v. Smith to uh, New Hope's argument uh, until the Supreme Court has ruled on that. I think if, if Judge D'Agostino went out on a limb and issued a new ruling, just go back up to the Second Circuit anyway. Uh, but for now, 
at least in this individual case, the agency is enjoined from enforcing its non-discrimination regulation against New Hope until this case is concluded. Well, so they can continue to discriminate. Now they also said, just like uh, Catholic Social Services does in Philadelphia, they have a policy which they call uh, recuse and refer. <laughs> that means if a same-sex couple were to approach them, or if any couple were to approach them of whom they did not approve on religious grounds, they would refer them to another agency. And there are enough adoption and foster care agencies in central New York that it means the no couple that's interested is going to be unable to get the services. They just can't get them from New Hope. And New Hope is not a government contractor. And this is another important distinction from the Philadelphia case where Catholic Social Services was actually a contractor of the city and was receiving money from the city to carry out a city function. Uh, in New York, uh, they're licensed. You have to be an authorized agency in order to perform these functions and to uh, re refer these cases ultimately when you make a match to the family court or, or the surrogates court to approve them. Uh, but uh, New Hope, in fact, they make the point in their litigation. They said, we didn't want to take any money from the government because we didn't want to be bound by any of the government's rules, basically. We wanted to do whatever our religious conscience requires us to do. Uh, so there are all kinds of distinctions. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. For sure. And I know that there's an interesting fact that we uh, bring up in these cases that they, uh, the agency often uh, says that they're going to recuse and then refer. But what it makes me think of is the contraceptive mandate challenges uh, where some of these actors are saying it violates my religious faith to even check a box saying that I won't provide this coverage. So certainly you could advance an argument that, you know, even referring somebody requires a violation of uh, their religious faith if they're a same-sex couple. Right. Or at the very least, if we referred you to an agency that allowed you to adopt, we would be complicit in an adoption of a child by a same-sex couple, therefore damning them in perpetuity. Well, it's truly head-spinning, and of course we'll come back to this issue next month when we talk about Fulton v. Philly and Amy Coney Barrett and the line of questioning that we saw. But let's go ahead and take a break, and when we come back we'll talk about the Bostock ruling and how that's being used to expand equality across the nation. All right. Well, we're back. And uh, Bostock, the Title VII ruling from the Supreme Court, is the gift that keeps on giving for the LGBTQ community. Uh, it's being used to make arguments advancing fairness across the country in a wide variety of contexts, from the uh, discrimination in school front to uh, the cases that we're going to be talking about today, one which involves uh, the Equal Pay Act, and the second which pushes beyond uh, the type of employment discrimination in the facts of Bostock to other employment fairness issues. In this instance, an exclusionary employment benefits policy. Art, let's talk about these uh, cases. Okay, so the, the starting point is to say that the way the court decided Bostock, and particularly the way Justice Gorsuch wrote the decision for the court, 
made it, and I referred to this earlier on our first podcast when we were first discussing the Bostock ruling, it's a universal precedent. That is, his interpretation of the meaning of sex discrimination because of sex under Title VII is universally applicable to any federal statute that involves discrimination because of sex and theoretically is applicable to equal protection claims on the basis of sex because he didn't base it on the legislative history. He didn't base it on the particular context of the statute in question. He based it on textualism. He said, this is the plain meaning of the words. And uh, he went through various hypotheticals and pointed out how uh, if you are discriminating because of someone's sexual orientation or the sexual orientation of the people they associate with, et cetera, et cetera, you are inevitably taking account of their sex and treating them in a particular way because of their sex and the sex of the other person or the persons to whom they're attracted. No matter how you do it, sex is in the mix there. And so uh, one of the speculations I had after that case came out was we don't have to push for the Equality Act anymore or only certain provisions of it that might be necessary because there are actually some federal anti-discrimination laws that don't include sex. So we, we want to put sex in there, which the Equality Act would. But based on the Supreme Court's interpretation of discrimination because of sex, all the existing sex discrimination laws should fall into place. So we've been watching very carefully since Bostock to see how the lower courts are dealing with this when Bostock is cited in cases involving other issues from different from the ones in Bostock. Uh, so as you said, the first one, uh, although it also includes Title VII claim, uh, it included an Equal Pay Act claim as well. So the Equal Pay Act was passed in 1963, the year before the Civil Rights Act, uh, to uh, insert into the Fair Labor Standards Act, the Federal Wage and Hour Act, a provision saying that it is a violation of the law to pay men and women at different rates of pay if they're doing equal work. And it doesn't even require an intent to discriminate. It just requires on its face that two employees, one male, one female, are doing different, are doing equal work but are not getting the same rate of pay. Uh, and the assumption of Congress was it would normally be the woman who's getting less, although theoretically I suppose a man who's doing the same work as a woman and is getting paid less might sue. It does have various grounds on which you can provide unequal pay, for example, a seniority system or a peace rate system or any other factor other than sex. Well, is sexual orientation or gender identity a factor other than sex? Well, now the Supreme Court has said in the Bostock case, no, discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity is sex discrimination. So in this case, uh, Scott versus Carbonaro uh, Miss Scott, who is a transgender person who also identifies as gay. Uh, U.S. District Chief Judge Michael Seabright of the District of Hawaii is faced with this pro se claim by Miss Scott, who was terminated. Uh, she claimed, uh, in addition to a discriminatory discharge under Title VII, she also claimed that she was underpaid compared to others uh, who were male or who were uh, cisgender. And the question for Judge Seabright is, can she maintain her Equal Pay Act claim? And he says, well, under the logic of Bostock, yes. Under the logic of Bostock, uh, if you pay uh, people differently based on their gender identity, the Supreme Court would say that's discrimination because of sex. And therefore, if she can prove 
that she was paid less than uh, people who were cisgender and straight and male or any combination of those, uh, presumably she can make out a claim. Now the tough part in an Equal Pay Act case usually is proving that the work is equal. And it has to be, uh, there are a whole bunch of factors and there's guidance put out by uh, the Department of Labor and there's Supreme Court precedents on this uh, telling you how you decide whether they're equal. Uh, so at any rate, that's the, uh, that's the Scott case. Uh, and then uh, we have this other case, uh, Jimenez uh, versus the uh, local 225 of the Laborers International Union of North America. Okay, so this involves two women who got married on October 14, 2014. This is in the period between the Windsor decision and the Obergefell decision when more and more states were allowing same-sex marriages, including Illinois. Illinois uh, fell into place well before Obergefell. So they got married, and Ms. Jimenez applied through her union for the benefits uh, that were available to sign up her spouse for insurance, and uh, they said no. They said uh, our insurance coverage doesn't cover same-sex couples, even if they're married. Uh, and so she filed suit against them uh, and, and claimed that this was discrimination in violation both of Title VII and the Illinois Human Rights Act. Uh, Title VII extends to employee benefits as a condition of employment. You can't discriminate based on sex, and the Illinois Human Rights Act in fact, has uh, coverage for sexual orientation uh, expressly as well as, uh, as sex. And uh, ultimately, one of the issues in the case, uh, they sued the union, they sued the benefits fund, uh, and there was some question uh, whether you can sue the benefits fund under Title VII. And the court said, yes, the benefits fund is an agent of the employer, so they could be sued under Title VII. And the employer said, well, it's not our fault, it's the benefits fund. But then the benefits fund, through the a ball back in the employer's court and said, yeah, but the terms of the policy, the ones that the employer decided on, or the trust fund set up by the employer uh, to, uh, to uh, administer this. The point is it's an employee benefit. And if it's an employee benefit, it comes under Title VII. And actually, uh, shortly before the Obergefell decision, the fund actually amended its plan to extend coverage to same-sex spouses. So what this is about, because uh, the partner, Laura Luna, uh, the, the wife, Laura Luna, eventually was enrolled for the insurance. So she had been putting off uh, certain things because she didn't have insurance. She went in and they found that uh, she had cancer and she needed to undergo a hysterectomy. And if she had had coverage earlier and been diagnosed earlier, the need for surgery might have been avoided. This might, if they'd caught it and nipped it in the bud, they might have prevented it. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's the basis of the claim. Uh, even though she's in the plan now, she's claiming uh, that she should be entitled to compensation for the failure to include her earlier. Uh, so this extends back to the time when they first got married and they first applied. Uh, so the court turned away the motions to dismiss by all defendants, uh, maintained the suit. And uh, this, of course, is an important extension because the Bostock case, all three cases involved in Bostock involved discharges. Uh, and uh, some of the language of the opinion, uh, the hypotheticals that were used by uh, Justice Gorsuch in writing his opinion, all arose from discharges. 
uh, on finding that someone was gay, on finding that someone was transgender, on disapproving of a gay lifestyle or whatever. So this extends it and says, yes, you can also use Title VII to attack inequities in employee benefits, including denial of spousal benefits to a same-sex spouse. So, you know, once again, we see Bostock is being very helpful in extending these cases uh, and uh, extending the scope of Title VII, extending to the Equal Pay Act. Uh, we've already talked, I think, about some cases involving Title IX, where the Bostock decision is coming in helpfully that bans uh, sex discrimination in education. So uh, watch at this. And, and we've also seen it under the Affordable Care Act, so which we hope is going to survive. <laughs> Maybe we'll discuss some of that next month also, because the Supreme Court heard argument in that. Oh, yes, it is a blockbuster term, and it has been already, and that's not even talking about the Alito speech to the Federalist Society, which was completely unhinged and attacked Obergefell, and uh, that wearing masks is a violation of freedom, yada, yada. Uh, but let's go right into the of note. What do you have? Remember Edmo, the, <laughs> the transgender prisoner, and, and over the summer, over the summer, uh, the Supreme Court declined to grant Idaho officials a stay of the Ninth Circus decision affirming the injunction that uh, the correction department in Idaho must make available gender confirmation surgery to Ms. Edmo. Mm -hmm. uh, and the vote to deny a stay was seven to two. Now, you know who the two are, right? Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito, who filed the statement dissenting from the deny, uh, who, who basically voted against it. And then, of course, since the stay wasn't granted, Ms. Edmo got her surgery over the summer. But the state had filed a cert petition anyway. Uh, and the cert petition was denied on October 13th. And, of course, Justice Alito, joined by Justice Thomas, filed a statement dissenting from the denial of cert. He said, the case is moot. And what we should do is we shouldn't just deny cert. We should direct that the decision below be vacated because the case is moot. But seven members of the court didn't agree with that, obviously. Uh, so the Ninth Circuit opinion hasn't been vacated. And that's important because although the Ninth Circuit in that case didn't say that every transgender prisoner is entitled to gender confirmation surgery, it did say that in a case where it is found by the district court, based on competent evidence, that this is medically necessary procedure for the individual involved, they're entitled to it, and the state can't categorically deny it. And this is important because there's a circuit split. Uh, now, I think that the reason that the court denied cert is because it is moot as a practical matter for the particular uh, respondent in the case. Uh, but, uh, this is another hot button issue. And if they don't have to address it, they don't want to address it. There is a circuit split. They have been denying cert petitions on this issue for several years now, <laughs> dating all the way back uh, to uh, the, the first circuit decision uh, from like 20 years ago. So they don't want to decide this until they absolutely have to decide it. And sooner or later, they're going to have to decide it. So this will get up there, and we already know that, you know, you're not going to get Alito and Thomas on this, but who knows what the other justices may think. We don't know. 
Well, wow, what a jam-packed episode of the podcast. Thank you so much, Art. It's always a pleasure speaking with you. I look forward to unpacking some of the November goings-on. So don't go anywhere. We are going to be back next month with Art to talk about all of those things. And thank you so much for listening. This and future podcasts can be found on iTunes or at legal.podbean.com or at Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to tune in uh, in a week when I will be talking with legal board member Omar Gonzalez Pagan about some of the implications of the election, what it means for the future of litigation around LGBT rights issues, what policy changes we could see, how difficult it's going to be to undo some of the regulations that we've seen under Trump. It is a jam-packed episode, and you're not going to want to miss it. Thank you for listening and supporting Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York.